missionaries. Uh, we are full-time missionaries. You know, the Assemblies of God is um, a real blessing to this world for many reasons, but one of the prime reasons I believe that God has used the assemblies is in missionary work to the lost. And we send missionaries all over the globe. And uh, my wife and I have been some of those missionaries that you guys have sent out. And when I tell you my mission field, it sometimes is a little confusing because people don't think of the University of Michigan as a mission field. When you think of missionaries, you very often would think of like what? Going to Africa, right? Going to Asia, going into Saudi Arabia, and those are certainly mission fields. But um, after 30 years of doing this, I am convinced that the universities uh, in America are one of the most strategic mission fields on the the entire planet. Um, When you look at the world we're in, you look at the confusion, the craziness, the, the direction of not only the United States, but the entire Western world, it can really confuse people. And, and especially if they try to understand why that is. And if you want to understand why that is, you just need to go to secular universities. That's where it comes from. Because, see, at the secular university, our culture trains up young people that will then go into positions of leadership, power, and prominence in business, in education, in government, in healthcare. Take your pick, Right? That is the way the world is right now. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm just saying what is, and it is. And so if you want to change the world, you have to change the people that will change the world. And they're found in huge numbers at secular universities. And the other great thing about campus ministry is we minister to young people, right? So 18 to 25-year-olds, that's our range. And many of you know that... um, As we get older, we tend to, not always, you know, I'm not trying to be rude to the old folks here, like myself, but we tend to get a little more rigid as we get older. And young people tend to be more open to new ideas. They're also searching for truth. They're asking big questions in life, like, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? And is there a God? Those are on the forefront of many young people's minds. After they get into their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they get set in their ways. It's kind of like a, an oak tree. Uh, I mean, this is a metaphor that helps me understand this. You know, if you go outside and you find like a, a two-year-old, three-year-old oak tree, I mean, this young guy here, not to pick on you, but you're probably a teenager. Is that right? Yeah. So you could easily bend a little sapling oak tree. You just bend it right over. Now, if you go find a 50-year-old oak tree, good luck. You can't even move it because it's set. It's rigid. And so these college students are the future leaders of the world. They're open to new ideas. Many of them are searching for their purpose in life. Many of them leave their home, and they go to a place where they don't know anybody. They don't have any friends. So you can see the strategic opportunity to reach them, and sometimes you're reaching a future world uh, shaker. And that's what we do. We're at the University of Michigan um, I've got some of our team here. This year we um, had an internship where we trained five uh, full-time campus missionaries in training that are um, getting uh, grounded theologically, spiritually, really growing to hopefully become a campus pastor one day. And uh, we just had a fantastic year. And uh, I've got some of them here with me, so I'm going to introduce them. I told them I wouldn't embarrass them today, but I changed my mind. Just kidding. 
I'm not going to do that. But Noah and his lovely wife are here. So Noah and Bree, amazing blessing. Yeah, you can clap for them. You can talk to Noah and Bree afterwards. Uh, Caleb is right here. Um, Caleb Cain, also known as Sugar Cain, also known as the Wrath of Cain, right here. So um, just appreciate you guys. And I, I know I've told you that before, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, we're so happy to have you on our team. And, and five of them uh, were trained up, and they've all successfully completed their internship. These were all college students involved with Chi Alpha. They graduated did a year training, and they now have decided to go full-time as a, a full-time missionary, reaching universities here in the state of Michigan. So we are really grateful, and uh, we couldn't do it without you guys. So thank you sincerely for your financial investment in our dream. Thanks for your prayer support. Uh, we need it. It is a spiritual battle everywhere, and I'm telling you, it's a spiritual battle at the secular university. Um, and I say that not to complain. I'm just being real, okay? You just need to pray for us. So anyway, we're going to get into the word today. Is that all right? You guys like the Bible? Some of you? All right, they're getting fired up here. All right, so uh, really excited to teach this message. Um, this is a passion of my heart. My, my, both my wife and I, um, I should have even talked about my wife. You guys know Tammy, but I'm married to this wonderful woman, Tammy, we've been married since 1994. We have four beautiful kids, and we got a grandbaby. I, I have a granddaughter, and that's where my wife is right now. So my daughter is here visiting with her daughter. And so my wife made a smart choice. She let me come here with the interns, and she stayed with her granddaughter. And so, um, so my wife and I have been married since 1994. And what I'm going to speak with you about today is a passion of our heart. This is not just a sermon that I put together in like five hours. This is something that Tammy and I have tried to live for three decades. So this message comes from a place of uh, prayer, of suffering, of striving, of, of, of working this out in our own life. And what I want to talk with you about this morning is family legacy. So you can put that on the screen. So I want to talk with you about creating a good family legacy, and specifically breaking generational sins that have been passed down to you from those generations before you. So how do we create a family legacy for our children and grandchildren? And the sub-point is how do we break those generational curses and those generational sins that will hinder a good family legacy? Because listen, everybody will leave a family legacy. You will leave a legacy. Even if you're a dad and like, let's say we got, you know, in a, God forbid it would be anybody here, but we have lots of dads in, in Metro Detroit that have kids and then they leave, right? Well, I'm, they, they're not having a legacy. They are having a legacy. Their legacy is they left. So you can leave, you're always going to leave a legacy. But what we want to talk about is how do you leave a good legacy that will bless the generations after you? Two, two phrases here. This is kind of like, if you remember anything from my sermon today, if you could just remember these two things, okay? So let's put that up on the screen. This is kind of my thesis or my summarization of the whole sermon. Begin with the end in sight, and number two, finish strong. So 
Begin with the end in sight and finish strong. If you want to leave a good family legacy, you have to, no matter what age you are, whether you're 15 or 50, you have to begin the task with the end in sight. Let me give you an illustration. My uh, cousin Tommy tragically died a month ago, and it just took us all by surprise. He's my age. We were both born in 1970. I was just at his funeral three weeks ago. So um, my youngest son, Matthew, who's 17 years old, he came to the funeral with me. So we went to the funeral. Um, it, was, it was sad, you know, crying, and, and it was a tribute to him. He was a very great man. And after the funeral, uh, we were in Kalamazoo, which is where I was raised. We were hungry. You know, so what do you do after a funeral? People eat. Uh, it's just we always eat after everything, right? Weddings, funeral, doesn't matter. People eat. So we went to Culver's. And I was sitting at Culver's. I'm getting, people are getting excited finally. It's funny, man. You can be preaching at church. You talk about food and everybody wakes up. They're like, oh, hallelujah. Now we're talking. Now he's speaking my love language. So here we go. Culver's, butter burgers. I'm getting excited. Um, so I'm at Culver's with my wife, Tammy, and our youngest son. The, the, the only three from our family that could go um, was us three. So we're at Culver's. And my son, Matthew, who's 17, was sitting across from me. And he looked at me and he said, at the funeral, I was thinking, I wonder what people will say about me at my funeral. And I said, that is wisdom, Matthew. See, begin with the end in sight. Right? Begin with the end in sight. So he's beginning his life. He's a junior in high school, but he's already thinking, as he heard everybody talking about his, his cousin that just died, what will they say about me? And I said, that is wisdom. And then, I ch- and then I put him on the spot like any good dad would do or pastor. I said, okay, what do you want people to say about you? And I think he said something to the effect that I loved God or he's something like, I was a man of God and that I loved my family. So, hey, that's good. There you go. That's a good summary. If they say that about you, that's, that's prime directive in life right there. So what I'm really talking about this morning is Taking time to think about those that will come after you. You see, this entire concept of family legacy is foreign to most people in America because most people in America think about themselves. And those that leave a great legacy are obsessed with thinking about others, living like Christ and not being consumed with their own life, but those that come after them. What kind of impact will I make for God by thinking about my choices today? And, um, and to leave a, a, a life of a good legacy requires that you practice delayed gratification, take up the cross, and fulfill God's purpose for your life and for the sake of your children and your neighbors and those that will come after you. Now, I think all of us can, can see the disastrous consequences in our world of those that think primarily of themselves only, right? You can see that in many areas of life, can't you? But there is no other institution where the glaring pain and destruction of selfish people is seen more clearly than within the family, right? Sinful, selfish choices of moms and dads within the family have created havoc, and they have very often perpetuated generational sins. And 
as, as I preach on this today, and I, I want to pray with you guys in, in just a minute because um, I think we need to pray for a message of this type. And I want to um, also communicate with you that I fully intend to, to the best of my ability, be precise and gentle in what I'm saying. I realize that many of you in here probably were the recipient of hurt, right, from moms and dads. And this is not a bash our parents in any way. Okay, I don't want to do that, I don't, no matter what they did. Um, but I do realize that there's pain in some of us, so I want to be more surgical in my approach, um, to be careful. I don't want to, uh, I see this sermon as me having like a scalpel. I'm not coming with an ax, you know. If you teach on this kind of message with an ax, I mean, you're just going to chop off heads. You know, you're not doing any good. It's going to be really bad. And so I'm not trying to like come in like a bull here and to ruffle things. I, but I do believe the Lord put this message on my heart. Uh, and certainly it's for me and for hopefully some of you here as well that God will use to empower you and inspire you. And I want to be precise and I want to be gentle. Um, I think as I speak on this, something else is important for you to understand. And this is a sign of maturity that takes time. What we have to realize if when you think about this, and see, the reality is most people don't want to think about it because it's too painful. So they just stuff it. But what you need to realize is you have to think that, that yes, my parents might have did something that, that was a generational sin, and it's clear, and it passed down to me. But you need to come to the point where you realize that they were, your parents were probably recipients of this too. See? It's not like they had the greatest life necessarily. And so that's a sign of spiritual maturity and growth in Jesus Christ when we can extend grace to those that were over us that maybe hurt us and perpetuated generational sins and curses in our life, but to be able to say they also received it. I mean, my wife was raised in a home and she had a lot of hurt, but you know what? There were people in her family that hurt her that were extremely hurt. And I saw my wife in her 30s begin to realize that and extend grace to people that most people would say don't deserve any grace. And she was able to say, but they were hurt too. And so what we're talking about is breaking the cycle. Breaking it. It stops now. It's going to stop in my generation. So if, if we're going to see that happen, we need to pray. And that's why I wanted to just pray with you guys before we jump into the scriptures. We're going to look in the Old Testament today. And um, I pray that it will be a blessing and kind of inspire you uh, to, to, uh, to leave a great legacy. But let's, um, let's pray together, can we? Let's ask the Lord to, to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Um, we thank you that you have called us here for such a time as this. And we are praying that in this generation that is so dark and confused, that you will raise up godly Christian families that are not perfect, will never be perfect, but they are real, they love you, and they will make a decision to leave a good family legacy for their children and grandchildren after them by the grace of God alone. Father, we cannot do it in our own strength. Um, but we're not alone. We have your Holy Spirit to strengthen us. Father, I pray that you'll come with healing, with conviction, with inspiration, with anything that we need in this moment. And we thank you for it. And we ask it in that amazing and all-powerful name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, we're going to look at um, Old Testament kings. Can we do that? We're going to look at the king. Now, this, this message is going to start out. It might not seem the most encouraging, so just stick with me, okay? Because we're going to look at some kings that left a bad legacy because I want to show you the nature of generational sin, but it is good. You just got to stick with me. At the end, we're going to look at a man that, that was a great king and left a good legacy for those after him. But we're going to start with... Uh, First Kings, and if you want to follow along, I'll also uh, put a picture up in just a second. But actually, we could put that picture up here of King Jeroboam. We're going to be in First Kings chapter twelve. First Kings chapter twelve. Now, before we talk about King Jeroboam, I do want to just share real quick to who his successor was, because the successor—I'm sorry, not the successor, but the uh, predecessor. So King Jeroboam was preceded by a king that you probably heard about. His name was Solomon. Anyone heard of King Solomon? So King Solomon, who asked the Lord for wisdom, and God said, I'm going to give you wisdom. You're going to be the most wise man that's ever lived on the face of the earth. And God gave Solomon wisdom. And he lived this life, and he wrote Proverbs, and he wrote Ecclesiastes, and he lived this life of wisdom. But at the end of his life, as he got older, his heart was slowly turned away from God. And it says in 1 Kings 11, which we're not going to look at, but it's one of the most sad chapters in the Bible. Because in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, it says this about King Solomon. And, and, and let me just say this. This is important. And to think about your life. When you look at the lives of the kings... Very often, their entire life is summed up in one statement. Has anybody noticed that? You go through First and Second Kings, the entire 80 years will be summed up in one statement. It's the, 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 the final legacy of this man. And First Kings 11, 1 says this. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, and they turned his heart away from God. That's the summary of Solomon. He married, he had a thousand women. And they turned his heart away from God. And this man, at the end of his life, who had, was the son of David, the man after God's own heart, who loved Christ and who was not perfect. And this is the thing. When I talk about family legacy, I'm not talking about perfection. David was not perfect, but he was a man that was willing to repent. And God knows I'm not perfect. Just ask my wife and ask people that knew me in high school. I'm far from it. But David came to the Lord in humility, and his son Solomon asked for wisdom. And at the end of his son's life, Solomon, his heart was turned away. And would you believe it? He was building altars to demons when he was an 80-year-old man. Just don't get mad at me. I'm the messenger. Read it. He literally made altars to Baal. Why? His wives wanted that. His wives were from other peoples, and they asked, and he made altars to demons the man who created the temple, the, one that, the man that oversaw the temple of the living God in Jerusalem at the end of his life is, is authorizing the construction of altars for demons. Well, the kingdom is split, and a man becomes king named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is who we're going to talk about first. And you can see Jeroboam here. He's the man that's praying there in the image. And as you're looking at that image, let me read... Uh, a statement here in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. So King Jeroboam consulted, and he made two golden calves. And he said to them, 
It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on the high places, and he made priests from among the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made, and he stationed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. Let's stop there. Jeroboam is following in the sins of Solomon, and you can see in the image here, they have the calf set up, and you guys, of course, know where that practice began when the people of Israel left Egypt, and Moses was away for too long, and they asked for a calf, and they began to worship a golden calf. Um, now, many hundreds of years later, they're bringing this, this demon is, is, is coming back. They're welcoming him in. But Jeroboam went farther than Solomon. See, I don't know Solomon's heart, and nobody knows it, but he knew David. He was David's son, and I think maybe Solomon was conflicted. I hope he was, but he still made altars to these demons. But Jeroboam went beyond that. Jeroboam invented his own religion. He institutionalized the paganism. Do you see? Did you hear in this statement? He made his own priesthood. Forget the Levitical priesthood. He chose men from among the people, and he said, you're going to be priests of this calf. And they institutionalized and created a false religion of paganism within Israel itself. So he went even farther than Solomon, his predecessor. But in the midst of this, and this is what I love about God, and I said the message might, seem, might not seem real encouraging, but it does get encouraging. Stick with me. In the midst of it, when things look very dark, a light began to shine. And we're going to read in, in 1 Kings a prophecy. This is chapter 13. 1 Kings 13, verse 1 and 2. This is a prophecy. Right in the midst of this spiritual darkness, look what the Holy Spirit said through this prophet. Verse 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, the prophet cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. What is happening? This prophet, well, let's look at the art because do you see that man with the crazy eyes and he's pointing at the king and they're holding him back? They're trying to throw him out of the church. Well, that's not a church. It's a pagan temple. They're trying to hold him back because he's prophesying to this king and he's saying, you might be worshiping these demons, but my God's going to raise up a man and his name is Josiah. And he's going to destroy this altar. And in fact, the priests that you chose on your own, this false religion you invented, their bones will be burned on the altar. 
This was the prophecy. This was a glimmer of hope. And very often when things in your family are the darkest, when it seems like it can't get any worse, God wants to raise up somebody to break the curse. God wants to raise up somebody to be a modern-day Josiah, and I want that to be you. I want you to come away from this saying, that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be this Josiah. I don't want to be like Jeroboam. I want to be a spiritual Josiah. Well, um, King uh, Jeroboam dies, and uh, another king is raised up. So let's look at that together now. We're going to look now at 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, we're going to read about King Amri. This is what the Bible says. Now remember, a summation of a king's life in one phrase. Here it is. Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins, which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Let's stop there. The phrase I want you to listen to, I'll read it again, is this. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he acted how? What does it say there? More wickedly. Why am I pointing that out? Let's go to the next slide. This is very important. Generational sins tend to increase in severity from one generation to the next. Generational sins do not just remain static. They become more and more perverse and more and more dangerous every generation until Josiah steps up. And so what we're seeing is you you already saw Jeroboam, but now Omri is raised up, and Omri acts more wickedly. You might have looked at that picture I showed, and you thought, how could you do more wickedness than that? Well, he managed to do it. He figured out a way, okay? So let me give you an example. Let's let's talk about modern-day example. Generations. Every generation has their own battle to fight, right? Some of you in here are the new emerging generation. Some of you are old, and some of you are real old, and we won't make anybody raise their hands. But I met a man this morning who will remain nameless, and I was talking about my dad, and I said, my dad is old. He goes, well, I'm old. And I said, not as old as my dad. My dad was born in 35. He said, I'm not that old. (laughs) Exactly. My dad is old. He's 86. So let me tell you a story about his dad. And I want to illustrate how generational curses increase in severity by using an illustration of sexual sin. There's many sins in this world. There's many perversions. But sexual immorality is a big one in your generation. Am I surprising anybody here? Okay. My grandpa, immigrant from Sicily, came over from the old country, right? He's a Grisco. They lived on the same street with the Anselmo family. Well, there was a little girl. And they grew up together. They played together. She became a woman, and her name was Lily. And she was beautiful, and he wanted to marry her. So my grandpa, Vito, would court, started courting Lily. He had to get permission, of course, obviously, and the families talked about it. And he would want to go on dates with my grandma. And I remember when I was young, he would tell me stories. He was so frustrated. You know why? Because all her sisters had to always be there. And there was a lot of them. I think there was nine Enzelmo kids. 
And so they'd go walking down the street, but you'd look behind them, and there'd be like a train of four women right behind them, all the sisters. They were watching, right? It was not acceptable to have sex. Forget sex. It's not acceptable to even touch her, right? That was 1925 or something, right? I mean, 1930. It wasn't that long ago. I might seem like a long time. It wasn't that long ago, right? And they got married, and they had five kids. And uh, they had my dad. My dad was the firstborn. He was the firstborn son, the firstborn child. And, you know, I've had conversations with my dad. And every once in a while, my dad will get kind of philosophical. It's really fun. I loved it. We love those moments. And I'll just listen. Talk about the way things used to be. And he just loves to look at the world. He's just an observer, a very artistic. He's, and he'll tell me things like, he says, Neen, and that's what he calls me, is Neen, because my name's Nino. He says, Neen, I remember in high school, he said, you know, like the boys all wanted to have sex. He said, but my entire high school, there was like five women, five girls that would have sex with a guy. In the whole, entire high school, none of them would. You know, all the guys knew who they were. And that's sad, isn't it? That's how guys are. I'm sorry to break it to you, but you, you're like, yeah, dogs. No, sorry. But that's how the boys were. But only five girls in the whole high school. It's like none of them would do that, let alone kiss you. Um, that's only in the 40s. 1940s, 1950s, right? That's my dad's generation. Next generation, fast forward, baby boomers come. Baby boomers, you began to see a, a laxness and a, a, a loosening of sexual morality, and, and it began to embrace uh, sexual uh, interaction outside of the marital covenant for the first time. Now, this stuff has always happened. We just talked about Solomon. But I'm talking about as a society embracing this and institutionalizing it as something good, and baby boomers began to pursue that life, right? So those that were probably now, they're like 60 to 75 years old, it's that generation. Um, okay, boomers. Um, so for the boomers in here, you, under, you guys remember that transition. And so there was a, but, but even so, there was still a morality in society, but they pushed against it, right? They really remember sex, drugs, and rock and roll? the generation of the 60s, and then my generation. So I hope you just stick with me here. And then came Generation X. Parachute pants, mullets, big-haired women, and KISS, and ACDC. Do I have anybody that was raised kind of in the 80s? Anybody with me? Oh, yeah, there we go. They were weird, strange people. Gen X is strange. But in my generation, so I was born in 70. I was raised in the 70s and 80s as a kid, not a baby boomer. But the sexual um, acceptance of sexual sin became even more prevalent in society where it was, it, was, it was accepted that people would live in fornication. But I still remember in the 70s that people would not typically live together outside of marriage. In the 80s, even in the 80s. Now, it happened. Obviously, it happened. Of course, we're not. I'm generalizing, right? But I remember people in my neighborhood like, oh my gosh, he's living with her. They moved in together. Can you believe it? Right? Oh, my gosh, Bob just moved in with her. This is not right. People talk like that still. Right? But, but in my generation, it was okay. The fornication had been embraced, but you didn't live together. They were trying to have some semblance of morality, but you should get married and, and be a good man and marry her and raise a family, right? 
And then my kids now, uh, Gen Zs, were raised in a generation where not only is it um, accepted that you can, you can hook up, whatever, live together, but homosexuality has been fully embraced. Perversion of sodomy, completely embraced, as if it's normal. If you stand against it, they will say you're, you're, you're uh, abnormal. So that's the current generation, more the younger generation, right? So your generation in their 20s. Well, what will the next generation embrace if God doesn't raise up a Josiah? So why do I share this story? I, I chose this illustration because I think it's something we all see, and it illustrates how generational sins increase in severity each generation until God raises up a Josiah and says, that's enough. Enough is enough. Um, I would share an illustration from Popeye, but nobody understands Popeye. Nobody remembers Popeye. He was my man. Wait, you do? They're with me again, Caleb. I will come up. Okay, so note to self. Talk about food and Popeye. Note to interns. You got him. So boom, Popeye. Remember Popeye? He said, I've st- what if we see something like, I've stands what I can stands. I can't, I can't stands no more. He'd eat that spinach. Boom, he'd get those big, or no, it's here, forearms. And he would put an end to it. So, um, that's, we need that, like, Josiah says, I won't take it anymore. I'm going to be a, a man of God. I'm going to be a woman of God. And by the grace of my Lord, we're going to change things for my kids and my grandkids. Well, there's one last king that we can talk about, and then I'm going to bring this to a close, and that is Ahab. Um, and we have a, uh, a picture as well of Ahab. This is 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Let me say that one more time. Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Again, I think I've made my point. I want this to become an encouraging message and end on a positive note so you get the point. That is Ahab and his wife Jezebel that went even beyond Omri, but then there's Elijah. You guys see Elijah? Oh, let's go back. There's Elijah. I don't think Elijah really looked like that. I didn't paint the picture. Elijah's ripped. I mean, those calves, I mean, my man's looking good. You know Elijah didn't look like that. He was out in the wilderness, you know, fasting. He's probably real skinny, you know. But they made Elijah look tough. Got the deltoids. Anyway, Elijah is challenging the king, and he's, he's, he's saying, you know, what you're doing is wrong, and you guys know the story. So let's talk about some good news. Let's talk about this young boy named Josiah. I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 22, and you can put up a slide of Josiah. Chapter 22, verse 1, we're in 2 Kings. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. How would you like to be king? He was eight years old, and he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his father David, 
nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. There's the summation of Josiah. And Josiah gets his own icon. No one's making icons of Jeroboam and Ahab. You feel me? Right? You know, you know he, he gets the halo. They don't get the halo. I want a halo, right? I want to be a man that they, they gets the halo. And so on the left top there, you can't read it, but they wrote it, righteous. And then on the right, it says, Josiah. Righteous Josiah. Solomon, Jeroboam, Omri, Ahab. But then God raises up in this line a man named Josiah. Josiah, the Israel was so dark that no one even knew the scriptures. So much so, there's a story. We're not going to go into it. Some of you know the story about finding the word of God. The scriptures had been lost, and the guys were trying to clean out the temple and make it look good again so they could worship God. And they found a book, and they brought it to the king, Josiah, and they said, we found this book. It's the book of Moses. And they read it. Hundred years, no one had even been reading the scriptures. Sounds like a country I know. Um, I'm just trying to talk about our country, right? You guys understand what I'm saying? Scriptures have been forgotten. The stories of the fathers and mothers of the faith have been forgotten. But in the midst, scriptures were found. And they read it to Josiah. And when they read it to this man, the Bible says he was so upset he ripped his robes, and he said, we're, we're going to be judged by God. We're living in sin. And he made all these reforms in the country. And he said, we're going to honor God to the best of our ability and live righteously and break these curses and generational sins. That was Josiah. So I'm praying, and in closing, I'll share this. I'm praying that you will come out of this sermon inspired to ask God to use you. To, to be a, a spiritual Josiah so that you can get to a point where you'll say, I was abused, but by the grace of God, I won't abuse my kids. Amen. And you know, if you want to be able to say that, you got to be able to say like, like this, I was abused and I will abuse my kids without the grace of God, but by the grace of God, I won't abuse my kids. See, that takes humility, but that's true. I want you to come out of this sermon and say, I was abandoned. Yeah, that's true. My dad abandoned me. My mom abandoned me. But by the grace of God, I will not abandon my kids. Okay, yeah, you say, yeah, I was raised by a drug addict. I get it. Alcoholic. But by the grace of God, I will not abuse drugs and alcohol. I will break that curse. Through Jesus, not me alone, but through the power of God with me. Yeah, my parent was involved with false religion and the occult. That's true. But by the grace of God, I won't participate in false religion. I won't do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it. Let me close and pray for you. Exodus 20. This is, a, this is in the chapter of the Ten Commandments, which is found in Exodus 20. And I haven't heard a lot of sermons that emphasize this which I think is, is tragic because this is so powerful. God gives a stern warning about generational sins, 
But in the midst of it, you guys listen. It's a promise that is so beautiful. I prayed it a hundred times over my kids and myself because I need it. Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6, and then we'll, we'll pray. God said, you shall not worship them, this false gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Let's pause there. And that's true. Generational sins are visited three and four generations when men and women do things. But you got to go on. Don't stop there. Go on and look at what it says. The Lord said, but I show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Yeah. Okay, those Ahabs of the world, yeah, there's going to be a generational sin for a curse for three or four generations. But for those Josiahs, to a thousand generations, I'll show my love and my favor. A thousand generations. That's what we want. Amen? That's what we need is the, the power and the blessing of God to break the cycle and to work in us. And I want to pray for you. I want to do it in a way that, um, you know, because I know this is sensitive, so no necessarily altar call. I just thought we could all stand together and pray because and, and, I don't want to single people out, you know, and say, yeah, I was abused. It can be awkward. But could we stand together? And then let's just pray. And I want to pray a blessing over you. And then um, I don't know if you want me to turn it over to you at the end or just to close us. I can close it or, yeah, and then I'll close it. But why don't we um, just kind of turn our hearts to God uh, and ask the Lord. A couple things prophetically I'm sensing. It's not too late. It's not too late. Uh, You can be a grandfather, a grandmother, or a parent, and you might be thinking, you know, Oh, this applies to young people like Noah and Bree just getting started. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is a great sermon for them, but what about me? It's not too late. You can be a great grandparent. You know what I'm saying? You can be a dad. Maybe you're a dad and you're like, hey, I did things wrong. It's not too late, man. Don't, that's the devil. It's not too late. Change it today. Today, pick up that phone and make that call. Today is the day. It's never too late. And... Um, and I just, I wanted to share that because I sense that prophetically. I, I, I don't know, but I think it might be the Holy Spirit. It's not too late. It's the beginning. Today's the beginning for you guys. So um, I want to pray and, uh, and, and let's just open our heart to the Holy Spirit to, to really empower us here. Father God, we come to you and, and we know that, as I said, this is a, uh, a tough sermon. But God, I believe this is more necessary today than it was even 10 years ago. You are looking for some spiritual Josiahs, some spiritual mothers and fathers that will say, the curse stops now. And so, Father, I pray for every man and woman, every boy and girl in this sanctuary, that you will pour forth your Holy Spirit and empower us by your grace to live a life that is pleasing to you and a life that will have compound blessings to a thousand generations. Father, I pray for those that have been the recipient of a generational sin, those that have been abused or hurt. I pray that you will give them the supernatural ability to extend grace to their abuser, grace to those that were before them, 
not saying it's okay, not justifying any sin in any way, but saying, I won't let it hold me back. It will not define my destiny. I will be a spiritual Josiah in my family line, and I will be that man and woman that God created me to be. So God, we pray for, uh, for all of us here that are in that situation, that Lord, you will deliver us from um, bitterness, deliver us from anger and vindictiveness, and put within us a spirit of love, of grace, and of a sound mind. And we thank you so much, Lord, for meeting with us this time to worship you and to praise you. We thank you for Pastor Evan's family. We ask that you'll bless and strengthen them. And uh, we pray that we'll go forth now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for it. And we ask this in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, hey, thank you. Thank you guys for for having me. Um, After the service, if you'd like to talk or you had any questions about my my message, love to talk and pray for you guys. I'll just kind of stay up here in the front if anybody needs some ministry time and we we can talk. But hey, God bless you guys. Thanks again for your support.